All right, folks, it's another edition of Behind the Yell Line, a baseball podcast with Jeremy Spector and Randall J. Sanders. I am Ronan O'Shea. We are talking Chicago Cubs baseball. Randall, winter's coming. It is September 1st as we record episode number 34 of Behind the Yellow Line. we got a lot to talk about here tonight. The Cubs are wrapping up sort of an uneven road trip. They lost two of three on the south side against the White Sox, then came right back. Frank the Tank having an August to remember. It rolls right here into September, and the Cubs, at least as of recording this, holding on to a lead in Minnesota, a chance to sweep that two-game set. We're going to talk about the road trip. We're also going to talk about the Cubs' upcoming homestand. It's a big one, a 10-game homestand. We're going to focus more on the first seven games of that on tonight's show. The Pirates are in for four. The Reds are in for three, wrapped around Labor Day. We're going to hold off on the conversation on Chris Bryant's return to Wrigley Field and the Giants, which ends this 10-game homestand. We'll save that for the next show. Other things to talk about today, the Cubs out a documentary saving Wrigley things I like things I didn't like in that documentary we are going to compare this Cubs team to some of the all-time bad Cubs teams where do the 2021 Cubs stand I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised it's not as bad as it has felt and we're going to put that into perspective we're going to talk about the upcoming collective bargaining agreement that's been something we've been teasing for a couple of weeks the CBA expires December 1st lots happening between now and then forward to keeping the Ballad of the 2001 Chicago Cubs will end today's show looking back on a memorable stretch of baseball from mid-May into early June, and I want to talk about that miraculous 2001 season. It was a memorable one. Uh, This could be a memorable show, Randall. I certainly hope that that's the case. This is episode number 34, and with it, we want to pay tribute here to some of the all-time greats to wear number 34 for the Chicago Cubs, and I think when You mentioned 34 in custody, two names that come to mind, Dick Pohl, the pitching coach in the late 1980s, part of the coaching staff. Of course, I'm kidding there. Kerry Wood, John Lester, the two names that come to mind. Randall, you are our resident numbers expert. I think it's safe to say between Kerry Wood and John Lester, the number 34 now has a ton of significance in Cubs history. It does. And 34 is one of those interesting numbers that they will probably never formally retire but you, we've had this conversation in the past. You'd like to see them kind of hold on to it and not give it out to kind of any player who wants it. You know, Kerry Wood did such great things and for such an extended period of time wearing 34. And I remember Jeff Gray. Does anyone else remember Jeff Gray? I didn't think so. I remember Jeff Gray being given the number during his brief time as a Cub in 2010. And it didn't look right. We had seen 34 on the mound for the Cubs for so many years. And here was this, this minor leaguer who had just been called up wearing 34. It didn't look right. And when Lester came over as a free agent after the 2014 season, I remember wondering what number is he going to wear? Cause his customary 31 of course has long since been retired. And I had number 32 ready. I had number 33 ready. Uh, and then he, he comes out and he unfurls this number 34 Jersey. And I said, you know what? That's a good look. That looks right. And Lester, of course, did great things in number 34 for the Cubs. So I'd like to see them kind of hold on to 34, not retire it, but don't give it out just to anybody. Keep it for players who you think are going to do some really good things for this organization, whether as a call up or as a a big free agent signing. Don't 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 retire, but maybe reserve it. Reserve it for certain players. Yeah, I remember uh, Jeff Gray there, Randall. I, I think he came over from Oakland. I'm not mistaken, but for me, 34 is always Kerry Wood. 
Uh, that's who I think of 34, the big Texas right-hander. Uh, you know, you, you wear 34 if that's what you are. And so I, I, I just, I was actually disappointed when John Lester wore 34. I didn't think it looked right at all. I thought 34 is a Kerry Wood number. He shouldn't be wearing that number. So for me, that's, that's how I associate it. I love Kerry. I think he's a great uh, Cub. I thought he did tremendous things. Unfortunately, he got hurt, but his 2003 year was uh, exceptional. He led the league in strikeouts. Um, so, and, you know, in the playoffs, obviously against Atlanta, uh, but so I, I'm a Kerry Wood guy and I'm a number 34 guy just for Kerry. I'm with you both. Uh, Kerry Wood certainly resonates with me as well. Jeremy, you and I on that same timeline there. If you're a 10-year-old or an 11-year-old in 1998, Sammy's hitting 60 bombs all over the ballpark. And then you got this 20-year-old right-hander from Texas. He's got the build of those guys coming out of Texas. He throws hard like those guys coming out of Texas. What he did in his rookie campaign, part of a memorable wildcard winning Cubs team. And yeah, injury is obviously a big part of Kerry Wood's storyline and the arc of his career, but also his perseverance. He came back from multiple injuries in the course of his career and even later in his career, reinvented himself as a top tier closer, even if it was only for a couple of years. You can't forget what he met, did and meant to the 2008 Chicago Cubs in the back end of that bullpen. So much fun watching Kerry Wood out there closing out ball games, closing out ball games to win division championships against teams like the St. Louis Cardinals in 2008. So 34, I'm with you, Randall. Special number in Cubs lore. And I know we've talked about this in an earlier edition of the podcast, but I love the concept of not just retiring numbers, that's one thing, but sort of having honorary numbers that have significance, a number that you have to earn. And I don't like the idea of a rookie coming up and wearing number 34. I want that to be a number that you earn, a number that has significance in Cubs history. I can think of a couple other numbers that have significance that shouldn't just be handed out. Certainly 21 comes to mind to me. No disrespect to Frank the Tank, but 18, a World Series MVP going to a, in, uh, you know, a first-year player who's well into his career, I don't love the optics of that either. But it is what it is. 34 is a special number, and I'm glad that we could talk Kerry Wood. John Lester, always fun, even if Lester's playing for the wrong team these days. You know, I'll, I'll keep this quick so we don't get too far off the beaten path. I'm actually kind of okay with 18 being kind of given out to whomever just because before Zobris got here, it had been basically handed out to whomever. And Zobrist obviously did everything he did, but I'm kind of okay with that being like a, a number that hops guys and maybe it'll find somebody else to do great things for the Cubs. But I mean, real quick to give you uh, a rundown of the last 15 years or so, Moises Alou wore it, wore it. Mike Quaddy wore it. Jason Kendall, Giovanni Soto, who had himself a nice run as a Cub, but Chris Russin, Suyoshi Wada, up until Zobrist and then Tapera and Schwindel since it's been kind of a, a journey number and I'm okay with it kind of staying that way. And maybe it'll find, it'll, it'll find another Ben Zobrist someday. So I, I completely agree that 21 needs to be kind of held in reserve 18. I'm kind of okay with hopping from guy to guy until it finds another historic owner someday. Well, a couple of other number 34s over the years, lots of unique names that have worn 34 for the Cubs. I mentioned Dick Pohl, the pitching coach with Don Zimmer's team is there in the late 80s and early 90s. 
hard pressed to find a better baseball name or a better name in general than a coach named Dick Pohl. Uh, Dick Littlefoot, sensing a theme here back in 1957. Also, Frank Thomas, the Cubs Frank Thomas, who played for the team in 1966. More recently, names that will resonate uh, other than Jeff Gray and Kerry Wood and John Lester. Kenton Bottenfield wore it in 97. Tanyan Sturtz, there's a name you haven't heard in 15 years or so. He wore it in 95 and 96. And then a great as well, Glenn Allen Hill, in his first stint with the Cubs back in 1993, War number 34. So lots of folks have worn it. It has been owned by high profile Cubs pitchers over the last 20 years. And we'll certainly see where that number moves forward um, next week. As we move into number 35, just a couple of names to get the ball rolling here. Randall Simon, Cole Hamels, Will Omen, Scott Downs. Goodness. We're going to have some fun 35 next week. But we want to talk about this current Cubs team. They're having an interesting road trip here. We knew it was going to be difficult going down to the south side. The Cubs did drop two of three against the White Sox. But in that, some memorable moments. Patrick Wisdom with a couple of two home run games. Alec Mills looking like a Cy Young pitcher in the Saturday game. Also that Friday game, the Cubs had the big lead, six runs in the first inning. That was erased about an inning and a half later. And the Cubs end up losing that game. You go to Minnesota, a quick two-game set, a fun win last night where tons of fireworks for the Cubs. We'll get into those specifics in a minute. And as we record here tonight on September 1st, top of the eighth inning, Frank the Tank, three-run home run, Cubs pitching between um, uh, Steele and uh, Adbert, I saw come in here in relief, blanking Minnesota. So 3 nothing in the eighth inning. At the end of this podcast, we'll know the outcome in this ball game. So kind of an up and down road trip here, Jeremy, but even with the two losses on the south side, lots of individual things to get behind. How surprised were you with Alec Mills coming out and blanking a dominant offense? Yeah, that was nice to see uh, on uh, Saturday for Alec Mills. Unfortunately, I didn't get to see much of it, but he came out and he had, uh, as you said, a dominant performance and Patrick Wisdom doing what he did. He had two straight games of two homers. Uh, Cubs going up six nothing in each game. Uh, so you know it was fun. It was fun to see the Cubs go out there, get at Ken- Craig Kimbrell again on Friday night. You know, unfortunately, uh, Keegan Thompson didn't really have it, couldn't find the zone. Uh, a lot of base runners that first night, so he kind of gave up. Second time this year, we've seen the Cubs give up a huge lead uh, in the first inning. But you know, it's night. It's night. It's you know, it's kind of fun to see these guys. You see Ortega. You see Schwindel. These guys are producing. And as we've talked about, I like I, I like watching this. And, it, you know, honestly, these guys have been producing just as much, if not more than Brian Rizzo and Baez right now. So it's kind of crazy to watch it. So Frank Frank's home in three straight days. So uh, it's, it's just a fun experience seeing these guys. Yeah, you know, Alec Mills, when he's on, he gets a lot of first pitch swinging and soft contact. That's what he was getting all night against the Chicago White Sox. And that's a difficult team to keep down offensively. So after the, I don't even want to call disappointment because it's kind of hard to be disappointed in this team right now. More like the, the deja vu of the, from the night before, after watching Arietta do the same thing earlier in the season, it was nice to see Mills go out there and just calmly, unassumingly behind his glasses, throw uh, eight, eight plus scoreless innings and watching them blank uh, a very capable team seven to nothing. And, you know, that's the highlight of the season series. The Cubs, I'm sorry to say, will not be claiming the, uh, <laughs> The Crosstown, it's more of an obelisk now. It's not really a cup anymore. Uh, the Crosstown sponsored trophy matchup thing. Sorry to say they will not be claiming that. But, you know, if you're going to win, you might as well make it a, a nice, tidy win pitching and, and uh, offensively. And that's what they did. It, it, was fun to, it was fun to watch. 
Yeah, and you know that Friday game, despite blowing the lead, it was the highest scoring Cubs. White Sox game of all time, 30 combined runs in that game on Friday. So to follow that up, a game where the White Sox scored 17 runs with Mills going out there and blanking them, pretty impressive and very cool to see that. Uh, look, the White Sox are clearly the superior team right now. They're, they had their years of struggling while the Cubs were on top of the National League. Now it's the Sox time and they've got a very competitive roster. So it is satisfying to get that win on Saturday and then um, a brutal loss Sunday. So we'll leave that where it is. That's how the regular season ends here between the Cubs and the White Sox. We'll pick that up again next year, Jeremy. Yeah, and I just want to also, you know, Saturday night, you know, the game. Uh, you got Cody Hoyer getting uh, a loy out to end the game. So, you know, that's a, that's a nice little fun thing to happen. Yeah, and lots of little moments, even in a losing season, in a season that we're going to look back on in 10 years and go, woof, man, things got ugly there after a first place standing really late in June, things really fell apart for this team in July, but you can still celebrate those moments. And that was something that actually really hit me yesterday. The first win in Minneapolis Cubs won that ball game by a score of three to one, but there was a point late in that ball game, two points. In fact, late in the game where my jaw dropped one, the home run from Ian Happ one to see him absolutely crush a ball, but two to see him do it as a right-handed batter. It was as picturesque of a home run that you're going to see into the upper deck and left field And then to put the game away, a guy that we haven't seen a lot of this year, Rowan Wick. He was very, very effective in the ninth inning, got a strikeout to end the ball game. Those are two names that when we look ahead to next year, it's like, yeah, both of these guys, if the Cubs are going to be competitive next year, are going to be big parts of that competitive Cubs team. So to see Ian Happ hitting bombs as a right-handed batter, to see Rowan Wick throwing the ball with a ton of movement, that gives you reason to be excited that these innings do count here at the end of this lost season. And these are two guys that should help the Cubs be competitive next season. Yeah, you, you got um, Wick obviously missed mo- most of the year. So him coming back and having a great inning last night, getting able to get that save, that's a huge thing. And Hap, you know, he's missed most of the year with any production, it seems like. But he's been great this last month yeah. or so. And, you know, we kind of joked about, you know, he's coming up and kind of shows it at the end of the season. But whatever. I mean, if he's going to produce, he might as well produce. So you take it for what you got. And I, I believe that tied his career longest homer as a right-handed batter, uh, 437 feet. I think that was uh, I believe tied it. To- it tied his career as a right-handed batter. And so, uh, you know, it, he's been really good lately. Uh, I, I saw him steal a base earlier tonight. He, I, you know, if he's going to produce, he, he, this is his time to produce. And, you know, there was some questions about whether or not he'd be, uh, you know, non-tendered in the offseason. I, I was a little skeptical of that. But, you know, if you're going to you play your way, uh, force the team to, you know, to yeah. keep you. So, and that seems to be what Ian's doing. Yeah, you know, every game right now, every everybody who appears in a game for the Cub, you're kind of play, mentally playing the game of, is this guy going to be on the team next year or not? Rowan Wick is a guy who should be on the team next year. You can never have too many hard-throwing relievers with late-inning experience, and you can never have too many relievers, period. Rowan Wick throwing the ball well is a good thing for whatever you believe the future of this team is. Um, so to watch him go out there and he struggled a little bit since coming off the injured list to watch him go out there, throw the fastball sitting 94, 95 with great curveball and that great cutter. That's what he does when he's right. And it looked really good last night. So again, everything about this last month is kind of about looking head ahead to next season, watching a potential late inning reliever continue to round back into form. That's a good thing. You want that to happen. 
and to Jeremy's point earlier too, to see Cody Hoyer pitching as effectively as he had, that's a tough trade. Anytime you're moving a, an all-star caliber and all-star player in Craig Kimbrell to your crosstown opponent, Chicago White Sox, you want to make sure you're on the right side of that. We haven't gotten to see Nick Madrigal this year because of the injury. The expectation is he'll be the starting or everyday second baseman next year. Maybe DH from time to time as we expect that to be a part of the National League. But there's not a lot of locks with this team going into next season. Assuming there's no other trades of guys that are currently playing for them, Wilson Contreras is really the only name to me right now that as we look to 2022, you pencil him in as, okay, that's your everyday catcher. That's your number one behind the plate. Kyle Hendricks in the rotation. That's a little bit different. But to see guys like Ian Happ playing well over the last month, Frank Schwindel, Patrick Wisdom, Rafael Ortega, all of these guys should be playing for positions next year. And I don't think any of these guys should be going into spring training next year with, hey, this is the expectation that they're the starter. They still have to earn it. At least that's what I want to see. And notable is who we're not talking about. And of course, is Nico Horner. He was removed from his rehab assignment. We may have covered this last week. Uh, I guess they thought he might have re-injured his oblique. It doesn't seem like that's the case, but he has yet to go back out on another rehab assignment. And from David Ross's comments earlier today, it sounds like time is starting to run out. The minor leagues only go so many more weeks. And it would not surprise me to see Nico Horner at some point here soon, probably shut down for the year. And that would be unfortunate because you mentioned Madrigal is probably slotted in as your starting second baseman next year. Nico is ostensibly slotted in as your starting shortstop. And you are not going to have seen him in that role as your everyday starting shortstop really at any point uh, this season appreciably. And that, that hurts because that's a, that's development time. He's going to miss that's time to, to scout him and think and ask, can he, can he do this? Can he play in this role? That's time lost. And that has a big effect on what next year's roster might look like, because if Nico had been able to handle that starting shortstop role, that might've been kind of one item checked off the shopping list. That's not the case. And so now you're probably going to have to bring in uh, maybe a veteran shortstop, maybe Javi again, uh, who we'll probably get to later um, to maybe back up or even start at shortstop. So that that's that has an effect on the offseason and that has an effect on next year's team is Nico probably not seeing the field again this year. You know, and to that point, Randall, too, you got me thinking about David Bodie. What a lost cause this season has unfortunately been for David Bodie. He suffered the shoulder injury back against the Padres in May. He comes back. Then he has this freak accident over the weekend at Sox Park where he trips on a baseball that was covered up by logos on the field. There was white chalk on the field. The ball was in that logo. He rolls his ankle. He's out of time. I don't think we're going to see David Bodie again this year. He's going to end the season with fewer than 270 plate appearances. What a lost year for David Bodie, a guy who's going to end up at about minus half of a war on the season. He just never really got momentum. He never really got a chance to stay healthy. And that's a bummer because this is a guy too. We know the power that he has. He's displayed terrific defense at multiple positions, but this season sort of goes off in the dust. That one really sucks. I think for David Bodie and for the Cubs. Yeah. Bodie. I'm a big Bodie fan. I've said it a lot of times. And it really does suck that he hasn't really been able to contribute at all this year, even when he's been healthy. It's been limited how much he could contribute. And, you know, he's a guy who's under contract. I mean, they gave him that contract extension, so it's pretty likely he'll be, he will be back. So it's going to be interesting to see what what is the plan for David Bodie? Like, is he just a utility guy off the bench, I guess, at this point? Um, and to Randall's point about Nico, I agree with that because both – one with uh you you do he, 
the thing about Nico is he has so li- such little time in the majors. Like, let's think about it. He got the call up in September. He got then last year is a shortened season where he never spent any time really in AAA. This year he got, I think he started in AAA and they called him up and then he's been hurt for so much. He had a hamstring. He's had other things. He, so he really has no real development time, you know, actually facing major league pitching. It's, it's very, and, and even AAA pitching, it's, it's not a lot of time. And then talking about being a shortstop, like I'm not, I don't know just the scouting of him to see if he can actually do it to be a major league everyday shortstop. These are big factors that, uh, you know, Randall touched on. So I, I agree with that. And it's, it's hopefully Nico can find a way, even if there's not a minor league season, hopefully he maybe can find a way back to come back and uh, just to see a little bit in the, at the major league level uh, this year. Although the minor league season is going a lot longer this year because it's yeah. such a delayed start. But yeah, and then the one guy right now, actually, I'm kind of curious about for next year because I'm watching this game right now on the TV is Adbert came in out of the bullpen and he's dealing and maybe Adbert in the bullpen should be a thing. Well, that's the great thing about the final month here of the season. Mix and match, get as many young guys in there, give them meaningful innings against big league batters. If he's got something lightning in the bottle there, we all know the talent, the slider. It's there. It's just can he put it there? And that's a great question, Jeremy. Is he better suited out of the bullpen or in the starting and rotation? I mentioned. I remember mentioning this earlier in the season as Adbert was struggling in the rotation. Question of is he in danger of kind of being demoted out of the rotation and being put in this multi-inning relief role? This is his first day off the injury list. Obviously, he's just coming off the hamstring injury. Um, I believe they've said he's going to pitch out of the bullpen the rest of the season as a means of limiting his innings. And as Jeremy said, he's looking really good. He's touching 95, 96 on his pitches right now. And if it, if it turns out where he really is better suited for kind of this bulk relief role where he's going to look really good and the stuff is going to play up, that's great. But that also, again, factors into next season's roster because you were probably penciling him in as a starting pitcher next season. And between him Keegan Thompson and Justin Steele, the results have been up and down. All three of them pitching in the rotation this year at various points, the results have been up and down. And what you think these guys can or can't do as advert is through three scoreless on only 24 pitches, 20 of them for strikes, by the way. Um, no walks. You know, no walks. That's the important thing. Uh, again, this affects next season. If you are a little worried about whether all three of these guys are going to be able to pitch in the rotation this next year, that is going to greatly affect your offseason shopping list. So again, that's why this, that's the importance really of this whole final month is getting a much better handle on what you think some of these younger players are best suited for, because that's going to have a huge effect on how you go into this offseason. Absolutely. And I don't want to move on from this segment without getting this stat in there. We're talking about Frank the Tank, Frank Schwindel, who's been the primary Cubs first baseman since Rizzo went to New York. How about his month of August? He OPSed over 1,000. He had six home runs. He batted at about 350. So awesome to see this. This is a guy who was beloved in the Kansas City Royals farm system. Everybody was pulling for him. He's shown perseverance having all of these years in the minors. Now he gets a taste of the majors, and he's putting on a show. His home run tonight in Minneapolis first career three-run home run. So good for you, Frank the Tank. We're pulling for you. He was a fan favorite here in Denver. When the Cubs were here in early August, the fans around us were having a lot of fun with Frank Schwindel every time he was in the batter's box. Um, quick story on that. Jeremy and I were both screaming Frank while we were sitting way up in the upper deck. And the guy in front of us turned around almost annoyed. His name was Frank. He thought we were yelling at him. We were talking about this great new Cubs first baseman. So a lot of fun at those games. Just seeing Frank Schwindel in the lineup 
let alone the fill-in for Anthony Rizzo had caught a lot of eyes. Speaking of catching eyes, of the guys we've seen the last two weeks or so, I'm talking about the Alfonso Rivas's of the world, the Hermesios, anything jumping out to either of you in what you've seen now that we've gotten really first looks at these guys in a Cubs uniform? Well, for me, uh, I'm just going to go with Hermesio. Uh, that defense, man, he's making some catches out there in center field. So he he looks like a guy who may maybe the opposite of Ortega, right? He, you know, he can hit left-handed pitching and play a, a solid center field. So, you know, I'm going to support the, uh, the guy who's tweeting out ILL after the line. I win football <laughs> games. So, uh, that's me on Hermosillo. Well, and also Jeremy, I got to give you credit where credit's due. Congratulations to your University of Illinois football team. Big win over Nebraska. Talk about a football program that is a shell of itself from um, a wonderful era they had as recently as the 90s. Things are real bad in Lincoln. That football team isn't good, but good for the Illini. I'm sure it was a, a happy day with your Badger head coach celebrating that big win. And seeing fans back in the stadium in Champaign. It's a historic stadium there. That's worth celebrating. Randall, these new guys on the Cubs team, what's catching uh, your eye? I'm excited to get a, a longer look at Alfonso Rivas because this is a real interesting guy, not particularly heralded. The Cubs got him as the, I believe, the sole return trading Tony Kemp to Oakland uh, a year or so ago. And this is a really interesting player because this is a guy whose primary skill is getting on base in his three seasons in the minors. That's just over a thousand plate appearances. He has a career 393 on base percentage. And that's not nothing because that is usually a skill that will translate to the major league. Cause so that's your, that's your pitch recognition. That's your eye at the plate. That's usually a skill that will translate. So he's a really interesting player. The glove rates out pretty well. We've seen him pick some really make some really good picks on throws in the dirt in this game tonight. Really the one knock on him as a first baseman is that he doesn't have a whole lot of power again in that, in his minor league career, which by the way, only three seasons, he was only drafted in, 2018 and he's already in the majors that's a pretty quick turnaround for a guy who was a, only a fourth round pick uh usually it take another season or two seasons for a guy to reach the majors but in and again those three seasons in the minors he only hit 14 home runs and he's only slugged 411 he doesn't necessarily have the power you expect from a major league first baseman and that raises an interesting question is can you win with a guy like this playing first base every day for you and he's he has some experience as a corner outfielder maybe he'll see some time there uh the cubs of course have themselves no shortage of corner outfielders but you know it's the question of can you have a winning lineup if your first baseman isn't going to hit more than maybe 10 or 15 home runs and not even 10 home runs over the course of a full season. And I think the answer to that is yes, but you've got to have power coming from a lot of other places in your lineup. So I'm really curious to see how he performs in this final month, you know, and it'll be interesting to see how they get him in the lineup alongside Schwindel. Um, given that they are both first basemen again, Rivas can play a little bit of corner outfield. Uh, the series, these series in uh, the other side of Chicago and on in Minnesota have been really good because you can DH one, you can put the other at first base. It'll be interesting to see how they split the time or how they get them both in the lineup going forward. I'm interested to see if he can be uh, a solid contributor potentially on a winning team, because again, a guy who really, really gets on base as his primary skill is something this lineup has lacked a little bit. Rizzo did it well. Bryant was pretty good at getting on base. Um, but other than that, you know, they haven't had a whole lot of guys who can really, really work that at bat and really find their way on base the last few seasons. So I'm interesting to see potentially how he fits in to what we hope will be a winning lineup next year. So I'm real interested to see how Alfonso Rivas plays out this final month. 
Yeah, for Rivas, uh, you know, he did come out of college, major college, uh, University of Arizona, Pac-12 school, big time program. So, and I'm assuming three years that doesn't does not include 2020. Uh, uh, his first year being 2018. You are correct. That does not include. So I mean, that, it, he is kind of a, that would be what he's like 25 now. I mean, that seems kind of reasonable to me. Right. He is. Uh, he's just about 25. Actually, he will turn um, 25 years old in 12 days. So we can wish yeah. Alfonso Rivas a happy birthday in a couple of weeks. But I agree. But with yes, you. he's just about 25. A guy who could put up a huge on base, even without the power, like a, uh, like if he's only like, let's say he's got like a three, you know, 70, 380 on base percentage, which is pretty high. So maybe he can't do that. But you know, with like a 430, a 440, you know, slug, that's that's still a valuable first baseman, especially if you can pick it. That can be that can be valuable. And, you know, if you have Madrigal, who has the ability to hit his way on base, and if you have Rivas, who can walk his way on base, a number, you know, and get on base a number of different ways, that's two real reliable table setters at the top of your lineup. But again, it underscores the need for reliable power and guys who can consistently hit with runners with runners on base, something this team has lacked the last few seasons, it underscores your need to get that production from other spots in the lineup. And again, you know, traditionally, and the game is not necessarily traditional anymore. The roles have changed, but traditionally you get your power from your corner positions, left field, right field, third base, and first base. So if you're not going to get that power from your first baseman, and again, this is something the Cubs through how many administrations now haven't had to worry about because you went from Derek Lee pretty much to Anthony Rizzo with not a whole lot of gap in between. Those were two first basemen who you could rely on to hit for power. If you're not going to necessarily get that home run power from your first baseman, you need to make sure you get it elsewhere. And again, going back to our theme, it factors in how you build the roster for next year. Where is the power going to come from? Carlos Pena. That's where Brian the power LaHare. is going to come from. Yeah, Carlos Brian Pena and, and all-star <laughs> Brian LaHare. Absolutely. It's going to yeah, come from those two. Brian LaHare. Well, I, let me just say for me, I, I, I I, I know there's all the traditional ways, as you, as you mentioned, about building and you talked about the, how it's in a non-traditional era uh, and, you know, getting power. But for me, it's just, you know, if you can contribute any way you can, just putting good players out there, not everybody has to be in a, in a set. So, like, if one, if you're uh, this guy is a great defender, this guy can get on base, doesn't matter, you know. I, I, that's just how I just look for the best players, uh, you know, for any position, regardless of how I, they I can produce. If you can I, produce... If you can produce, then produce. Absolutely. And again, that's why I said the game isn't really traditional anymore because you have corner guys who don't necessarily hit for power, but then they might be your leadoff guy or your number two hitter, the guy who gets on base. So I agree with you completely. If you can produce, produce and let your general manager and your manager find a way to get whatever you might be lacking production wise from another spot in the lineup. So I agree completely. If you can produce, then produce. Well, the, the other thing I was going to say is offensively, obviously is more, um, uh, robust or stable than uh, and then then a, a guy who gets all his power, you know, from defensively, uh, is not as con you wouldn't be as confident in that. Uh, you'd be much more confident in the guy who get who's getting it offensively. But uh, you know, like I'm saying, uh, as you just said, yeah. So to me, it's like if you any player who's contributing in any way, I like that. I'm just going with it. You know, that's sure. how I build my roster. Get the best players, no matter how they're producing. Well, they're not going to get power at second base if Nick Madrigal is the everyday no. second baseman next year. So we know it's not coming from there. A ton of contact. He's going to get on base. He's going to get a lot of hits, but he's not going to hit the ball over the fence a whole lot. Um, we're going to continue to talk and speculate. Go ahead, Randall. I think you got yeah. something to add. One one thing I want to add before we, we seg out of this segment. We know one former Cub manager who believed your second baseman always had to lead off. Yes. And how'd that end? Not terribly well. It ended with him being fired. 
Yeah, as so many do. Unfortunately, it ends in flames for a lot of these guys. We're going to talk about bad Cubs teams in a moment, but the Cubs are coming home. And, and actually, in fact, before they come home, I want to give credit where credit's due to one other thing. They've got a wonderful ballpark, it looks like, up in Minneapolis. Cubs haven't been there in a long time. It's been six years since we've seen Cubs base at Target Field, ballpark that's already 11 years old. That's kind of hard to imagine that that, park, that ballpark opened back in 2010. But it looks like, you know, outdoor baseball, August into September in Minneapolis, all those years we saw baseball up there in the old Twinkie Dome, it didn't, it, while it was a great playoff environment, it's not the place you looked like you wanted to see baseball games in the middle of the summer. So that's a ballpark on my list. I haven't been there yet. It's high on my list of places I'd like to get to. And it looks like all around they did a nice job building a compact urban ballpark and what a breath of fresh air pun intended of them getting out of that Twinkie Dome getting outside and getting to play in the August skies there in Minneapolis I think that's very cool Ronan absolutely I would love to see a game up at Target Field someday we all know you know if anybody knows me I like cooler weather versus warmer weather I'd love to go see a a mid late September game there outdoors bundle up a little bit you know we've all seen photos they uh they got the fire pits scattered around the concourses. I'll go get some some fried walleye on a stick. That sounds like a great time. That sounds like a great time at a ball game. I didn't realize you're such a Minnesotan up there. Well, and I don't know about those April, those Tuesday night April games. I don't know how fun that would be, but the rest of the year, it looks like they've done a nice job. And uh, one of these years, the annual road trip, hopefully it won't take six years for the Cubs to get back to Minneapolis. It'd be nice to get up there and see it. And um, anytime you build a ballpark downtown, that's a really good start in where things should be. And it looks like they did a nice job up there. The Cubs are coming home to a nicer ballpark, though. They've got a long home stand here at Wrigley Field. We're going to focus on the first two series here because there's an off day next Thursday. And then Chris Bryant and the San Francisco Giants are coming into town. So we'll save that for the next podcast. But here, four with the Pirates. The Reds are coming in for three. That's the wraparound with Labor Day. Before we get into some things to look for, we've got Cubs weather. Randall, what can we expect at Wrigley Field starting this weekend? Well, as all of our listeners know, at this point, we are fortunate to have the weather from Alexander Hall uh, of Cubs Weather, whom, as always, you can find on Twitter at Alexander Hall at Cubs Weather. And before we begin tonight, Alexander reminds us, and we would have mentioned this um, otherwise, but Alexander, of course, very civic minded. He brings it up first, sending thoughts to those recovering from Hurricane Ida. Uh, down on the Gulf Coast. Uh, He suggests consider donating to a trusted relief organization. A lot of good folks doing great work down there. And that is, of course, very true and a great sentiment. And we also send a thought to Alexander tonight, who is dealing with the remnants of Hurricane Ida um, in New York City. And he's having a, a difficult go of it, if I remember correctly. There's a lot of rain uh, flooding through New York City right now. So to everybody affected by Hurricane Ida, uh, all the best to you. And Ronan, one thing sounds like Well, I was just hoping, Randall, with the infinite powers that you have, if you could get that water and turn it to Lake Tahoe, the other half of the country is dealing with extreme fires. So it's it's crazy right now to see flooding down in the Gulf. There was terrible flooding today in rural Pennsylvania. There's been flooding and deaths all across sort of the Tennessee and Kentucky part of the country, and the whole West Coast is on fire. So, Randall, you've got powers that I can't quite... Uh, put into words here make it happen let's get some of that water going out to tahoe we're thinking about them as well they've got their hands full with severe fires there in california you know i wish i could be like storm of the x-men and control the weather that would come in very big (laughs) handy as a a sports fan 
Um, but that's always the way. The, the places that need certain weather never seem to get it. So we'll jump right into the weather for the first two series of this upcoming homestand. Alexander tells us September will take full effect in Chicago for this homestead. Sounds great to me. Warm but comfortable afternoons, not quite crisp, but crisp adjacent evenings with mostly comfortable humidity and the occasional chances for a shower. Uh, Alexander says, I don't know about you guys, but we are going to welcome this version of September with open arms here in New York City. The true crab boil days of summer still to come, probably number in the single digits from here. And that is music to my ears. So the Thursday night game against the Pittsburgh Pirates, a 7.05 central time start. Temperatures around 70 degrees at game time, falling to the mid to upper 60s with a light breeze in from center field and comfortable humidity. Sounds perfect to me. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday are all 1.20 p.m. starts, as they should be. Friday, temperatures in the mid to upper 70s with a mix of clouds and sun and a slight chance for a shower with a light breeze in from right field. Saturday, expect mostly the same. And then Sunday, temperatures in the low 80s, sunny and breezy out to right field. Again, sounds absolutely perfect. And then finally, versus Cincinnati for Labor Day, a 1.20 start. Temperatures will be in the upper 70s. It will be sunny, comfortable humidity, and a light lake breeze in from right field and center field. Tuesday and Wednesday night are both 6.40 p.m. starts. It's after Labor Day already. We go back to the 6.40 starts. Where did the summer go? Tuesday night, partly cloudy skies. Temperatures around game time in the low 70s, falling to the mid to upper 60s. An outside shot at a shower early. A light breeze in from right field corner or out to the left field corner. And then finally, the conclusion of that series, Wednesday, a 6.40 p.m. start. Sunny skies, temperatures in the upper 70s, comfortable humidity, and a light breeze in from the left field corner. That sounds absolutely perfect to me. I don't think you could come up with better weather um, for a, a September homestand at Wrigley, especially after the last homestand where it looked just nasty out there. People yeah. sweating, chugging water. Oof, no thank you. So as always, thank you to Alexander Hall of Cubs Weather. Find him on Twitter at Alexander Hall. Find the account on Twitter at Cubs Weather. And speaking of the weather, I'm forecasting the Cubs appear to have won tonight's game. That's a little bit of a cheat because I'm watching it live, but they did. They beat the Twins three to nothing. And uh, Albert Alzali, his first career save, he goes four scoreless innings. He strikes out five. He allows only one hit, no walks. That's what you like to see from an up and coming pitcher, a real, real solid outing Two young and up and coming pitchers combined to shut out the twins and the Cubs sweep this mini series against the twins in Minnesota. You take it, you take the wins. There's no doubt about it. Minnesota's got a bad ball club, although we thought they'd be competitive coming into the year. Their uh, run differential right now at minus 100. That's impacted also by the ball game today. So not a good team, but still for the Cubs to have young players, players that we expect to be in the mix for next year, contributing to road wins. We'll celebrate that. And thank you, Alexander Hall, for the weather. It does sound like a perfect and pleasant next couple of days out at Wrigley Field. This is the time of the year where I really get homesick when you get into September and October. I was talking to a coworker today who lives in Baltimore. She said, my husband and I, we want to go to Chicago, Ronan. When is the perfect time of the year to go to Chicago? And I said, really, these next two months, you get past the humidity of August, you get into September and October, particularly October, once the leaves start changing, you get the crystal clear blue skies, warm during the day, cool at night. Winter isn't here yet. So this is the time of the year where I think Chicago really shines. And I'm going to enjoy watching Cubs baseball for these next couple of weeks because Wrigley looks really nice in September. It's fun seeing the ballpark age throughout the season with the Ivy and everything. I love these September games where it's dark at first pitch and you just can feel the crispness 
watching the games on TV. It should be fun out at the ballpark. Chicago, of course, one of the greatest cities in the world, no matter what the season. But, you know, after you've had a, a particularly warm couple of weeks, nothing feels better than those first few those first few gusts of fall. And again, baseball is a summer sport. You watch the majority of your baseball outside in the summer, but there's really something to be said for September baseball. It's more fun when the Cubs are competitive in September, obviously, but just the same, you get the Ivy starting to turn a little bit, Ronan, you spelled it out. You get the dark at first pitch, you get the great sunsets, you get those low, harmless gray clouds that make any picture better. September's a great time to be outdoors and there's no better place to be outdoors than at a major league ball game. So you might as well make use of it. We're on the same page, Randall. The Pirates are coming in for four. The Reds are coming in for three. Uh, We know this Pirates team isn't very good. They're encroaching on 40 games under 500. Uh, The Cubs have had already multiple memorable moments against the Pirates this year. The Javier Baez play, it feels like a lifetime ago. That happened this season, Randall, in a Cubs-Pirates game at PNC Park. Did you happen to catch what happened tonight? The Cardinals and the Reds, and don't look now, but the Cardinals are on the cusp of getting right back into the wild card picture here. But did you see what happened tonight with Nick Castellanos and the St. Louis Cardinals? Ronan, I did in fact happen to see that uh, in part because I was uh, trawling for material for MLB closed captioning and long clips like that, that our broadcasters explaining things are usually pretty good, uh, pretty good gold mines. I did see that. And for our listeners who have not seen it yet, by the time this goes up tomorrow morning, uh, Nick Castellanos hit a, a grand slam. He's done that twice this year. I believe it's his 26 home run this year because that boy good. And uh, after he hit that grand slam, uh, Cardinals manager, Mike Schilt, I think that's his name, Schilt. I've never bothered to learn it. He <laughs> goes to the umpires and he, they, he tells them to check Nick Castellanos's bat. And Castellanos, I guess, had been using a bat that either by accident or on purpose had had a big kind of chip scooped out of it at the end of the bat, not in the, the middle, the, the cup of the bat, a lot of guys will do have made purposely, but kind of a big chip on the, the corner of the bat. And Schilt tells the umpires, go check that bat, make sure it's legal. And the umpires get together and they get on the headsets to New York talking about who knows what. Castellanos comes out there and with kind of a droll look on his face, he hands them the bat and says, here you go, take a look at it. And I guess Castellanos has, had handed that bat to a fan After he hit the grand slam with it, he had to probably politely ask for that bat back so it could be inspected. What a mess. And who I assume was the Reds broadcast crew, they pointed out that Schilt was reading straight out of the Tony La Russa manual, where if you think the other team is doing something illegal, you don't say anything until they do something productive against your team. And then you call it out hoping that it'll be taken off the board, you know, grand slam taken off the board because the bat wasn't legal. It's all incredibly silly. And it's the sort of thing you would expect from Mike Schilt, who is if fake it till you make it were a person. Uh, And it's just silliness. It's silliness. And I know you can't police asking the umpires to take a look at things like that, but I think you can suggest within the game to not be a dick about it. (laughs) Randall, I just figured, you know, for you, Cardinals, Reds, that's just, that's brutal. That's where, as you've said in the past, you're cheering for a meteor or something to come into the atmosphere at that point. I'm team meteor. I am team meteor all the way. Uh, pretty funny, though, there. Uh, Jeremy, what are you looking at here on the first portion of this homestand? Pirates, we know they're a bad team. The Reds, they've got tons of hitters. They're fighting for a playoff spot. You think that that'll make for some interesting drama at Wrigley Field? I, I do, at least for the first, uh, you know, series, obviously the Cubs and the Pirates, two pretty poor teams. 
So it, it should be entertaining in that regard. If you get two teams of, you know, kind of an equal status, then they should play entertaining matchups. Uh, so, you know, we haven't seen Pittsburgh for a long time. We played them a lot early on this year, and it's been and it's been a while since we've, we've seen them. And, you know, both teams have changed over the course of that time. You know, the Cubs have changed a lot. Even Pittsburgh's play, uh, changed a lot. They've called up different guys, released different guys. So it'll be interesting to see how the Cubs and the Pirates match up now, especially with the Cubs team that is nowhere close to what it was, you know, in April and May. So, and then with the Reds, you know, as you said, the Reds are in a playoff spot right now. So they're going to, they're looking to to pound the baseball. So I, I assume that they will hit pretty well when they come into Wrigley field and they will be taking their shots at, at, you know, at the bleachers, you know, Cassianos, uh, Joey Votto apparently loves, you know, hitting in Wrigley field. So I assume he'll go off. So it, it should be an interesting, you know, uh, weekend before, before we get to see uh, KB next week. Uh, yeah. The pirates made like super Mario world. They've added a Yoshi uh, Yoshi Tsutsugo. And in his last 15 games, he's hitting really well for them. He's hit five home runs. He's added, uh, yeah, he's added another six runs scored to that. He's getting on base. He's slugging for them. This is a guy who was cast off by two different teams this year, started with the Rays, went to the Dodgers. They jettisoned him and he ended up in Pittsburgh as most jettisoned players do. So that'll be my player to watch for this season. He's been playing a lot of corner outfield for the pirates. Um, They've been trying to hide him in the short right field at PNC Park. We'll see if they put him out there at Wrigley where the corners can be very difficult to play for someone who's never done it before. So that's my player to watch as the Pirates come in. I want to see if Yoshi Tsutsugo uh, uh, continues this hot streak he's on. And I want to see if the Pirates have enough confidence in his outfield defense to put him in the corner at Wrigley. It's your player to watch because his name is Yoshi, correct? Well, you know, you know, I, sometimes you got to go for the low hanging fruit, which coincidentally is also what Yoshi eats. Yoshi, you know, goes for the low hanging oh fruit if you're gosh. if you're walking through the levels. All right. Randall, I learned recently and I think we mentioned this in our uh, text message chat, but I recently learned that Mario's full name, the character Mario is Mario Mario. What's Yoshi's full name? Uh, you know, I'm pretty Tsutsugo. sure Yoshi. Yeah, his full name is Yoshi Tsutsugo. That's right, Mario Mario and Yoshi Tsutsugo. As far as I know, Yoshi is both his name and his species, which I guess is kind of like calling your dog dog. But uh, I believe, as far as official Mario canon is concerned, he is a Yoshi named Yoshi, and that's as far as his name goes. All right, good stuff there. The Cubs had a Yoshi, Yoshi Kawano, back in the day, um, but Yoshi is always the character. Anytime I'm playing a Nintendo game or Mario Kart. I'm always team Yoshi. I think he's, he's my guy in terms of those games. Um, lots more to talk about here on the podcast today. I want to shed some thoughts on the Cubs documentary, Saving Wrigley. We want to compare and contrast this Cubs team to some of the all-time bad Cubs teams to see where they line up. We got to talk about the New York mess or Mets or whatever the appropriate word is for them. The situation with Javier Baez, the collective bargaining agreement also on the docket here, and then we'll bring things home Reflecting on the 2001 Chicago Cubs, I got a real good story I'm looking forward to sharing with everybody. But the Cubs put out a story in the last two weeks called Saving Wrigley. It is an hour-long documentary produced by Cubs Productions, looking back on the rebuild that the Ricketts family took on and all of the developments that have taken place at Wrigley Field here over the last couple of years. I've got a couple things to mention. First off, have either of you seen it? Did either of you watch the documentary or, or parts of it? Or am I going in with an audience here that maybe hasn't seen it? I have not really. I have not. I've heard a number of things about it and not all of them were great, but I believe you are the only one of the, uh, of the three on this podcast who has put eyes on it. 
I yes, that's fair. And I figured, Randall, you wouldn't watch it because of the probably the biggest criticism with it. And let's just get that out of the way right now. This is a Cubs production. It comes from the Chicago Cubs. This is a PR film that the Cubs put together. So I'm not surprised that there's a whole lot of Tom Ricketts and Ricketts family love strewn in and out of this documentary. There's plenty of opportunity for them to pat themselves on the bat we, on the back. We knew that coming into it. That's not really what I was watching. I sort of was expecting that. It what I was hoping for in putting on the documentary is to learn some things about the actual construction of rebuilding and rehabilitating the 100 plus year old structure and to see video footage or photography that I've never seen before, the underbelly of Wrigley Field, so to speak. And that's where the documentary really stood out to me. So I would encourage people to watch it, but watch it knowing that, especially the first 10 or 15 minutes, you're gonna get past the Ricketts Fest. It was funny when I was watching the documentary, the first five or six people to appear in the documentary, uh, members of the Ricketts family, the ownership group, Crane Kenny, some of the attorneys or legal counsel that helped the Cubs in legal battles with the rooftop. I'm watching the documentary going, oh, that guy's an asshole. That guy's an asshole. I don't like this guy. And I kind of expected, like, if you're going to be the counsel of the Chicago Cubs, a multi-billion dollar industry, yeah, your attorneys kind of have to be dicks. It comes with the territory. It's part of the job. Where the documentary actually got interesting for me is when they got into the engineering and what they had to do. A couple of things stood out to me that I thought were worth mentioning. They do a really interesting piece about, they call them the F-line beams. And when they were talking about the F-line beams, I thought about Randall. These are kind of the FU beams in the lower deck of the ballpark. Those are those poles that you're sitting behind when you're sitting in the lower deck. The purpose of those poles is to hold up the upper deck. And something that I didn't know until watching this documentary is the foundation of those poles were from 1914 when the ballpark was originally built. So they put an entire upper deck on the ballpark on the original foundation. And once the crews got into the concrete, looked at the steel, it was completely falling apart. Literally, there were bolts missing. It was rusted over. The Cubs were hoping to kind of rehab some of the steel in the ballpark. They ended up having to replace most of the steel in the ballpark. So structurally, it was not in very good shape. And I think the Cubs avoided tragedy there, especially that run in the 2000s here, all the playoff teams, all those 3 million fans at the ballpark, they were telling stories about during the Jimmy Buffett concert, if you remember, fins to the left, fins to the right, the upper deck was swaying as fans were moving. We remember the collapse at Yankee Stadium, uh, what, 20 years ago or something now. These things have happened. So I think the Cubs avoided some controversy there. Another thing that I didn't really know about was when they rebuilt the bleachers, they actually tore down the bleacher wall. And what they learned as they were going through that process is the ivy was growing through the wall on the backside. The bricks had actually eroded since their construction in the 1930s. And they had to replace that. In order to replace it, they took all the ivy off the wall. They had to preserve that ivy from warming up in a new cycle. If it got too warm, it wouldn't have been dormant. All the ivy would have died. Could you imagine what that would have been? They rebuilt the bleachers. So a lot of care and conscientious effort was put into preserving the ivy and making sure that it was able to come back strong. And then the thing that really blew my mind was the construction of the home clubhouse. It's a 30,000 square foot clubhouse. It's the second biggest in baseball behind Yankee Stadium. But as they were getting ready to dig it, if you recall, it's underneath that green space they have between the ballpark and Clark. The, the dirt underneath Wrigley Field is sand. I never knew that before. In fact, all of Wrigleyville, the, the Wrigleyville, the dirt is sand. It's left over from the glaciers and all that. It's why we've got Lake Michigan. But in digging, 
where the clubhouse would be, which is underground, they had to make sure that the ballpark didn't sink into the sand and actually fall apart. And all of this was happening while the Cubs were still filling up the ballpark. They were drawing 3 million fans a year. So I would encourage you, watch this documentary. I didn't realize the diameter of the home clubhouse was 60 feet, six inches. That's a pretty cool number. That's the distance from the mound to home plate. The Cubs also have the only circular clubhouse in Major League Baseball. That was a Theo Epstein thing. He didn't want there to be any corners in the clubhouse. Everybody faces the middle. If you're in a circle, everybody's equal. So that was the stuff that was very cool. The behind the scenes footage, the underground footage, and appreciation for the engineering of them actually lifting up a ballpark that is in use and preserving it for what should be another 100 years. Get past the Tom Ricketts BS. There's a whole lot of that throughout the film. There's a lot of worthwhile things as well. So both of you, I'd encourage you both and anybody listening, put on the documentary, even if it's an off-season viewing for you, it's not the most painful hour. And I guarantee you're going to learn something new about the ballpark and at least have an appreciation for the engineers that preserved our beloved ballpark to give it another hundred years of life. So Ronan, you're, you're right, of course. I'm sure if you can get past the rickets uh, patting themselves on the back, engineer i'm sure is fascinating i remember them running with that uh, that offensively and as you were kind of running down the documentary here i'm going through my photo archives i have photos of walking behind wrigley on on waveland and on sheffield with the outfield walls just completely torn down and it's the, the the scoreboard atop what's basically a pile of rubble. And I remember it being very jarring at the time to see Wrigley in that state. And obviously I knew they weren't going to leave it like that, but it was still a, a very bizarre image. And um, I'll post some of these as we get this episode up tomorrow morning. But the one thing you, you mentioned how they had to ensure that the Ivy didn't die. They had to make sure that Wrigley didn't sink into the sand. We all remember the controversy when the Cubs threw out some bricks and a cake at some, some events some years ago. Imagine the controversy if they had let the ivy die or if they had yeah. let the entire ballpark sink into the, the glacial remnant sand underneath Chicago. Can you imagine the controversy if they had let the ivy die? The only, well, yes, I agree with you. Um, the only thing that would have come, fed, come from it that would have made me chuckle was the Photoshopping you would do, Randall, of that uh, pit in Star Wars where they're out in the desert and and uh, like there's ships and things getting sucked into the pit. The pit of uh, Carcoon, where the almighty Sarlacc <laughs> resides, where you will exactly. you will experience a new meaning of pain and suffering as you're digested over the next thousand years. They were saying, too, that they, they actually mined out the area beneath the clubhouse. They, it's called, um, I think, top-down or ground-down uh, drilling. And they had like mining equipment that was digging out the sand underneath the ballpark without letting the stadium itself sink into it. Very, very interesting things there. Um, and look, I got a lot of criticisms even about some things in this rebuild that I don't like. I've got tons of criticism about Tom Ricketts and for his family, but it is awesome that that ballpark is still standing. And something, Randall, I know you love reading YouTube comments on videos. Something that stood out to me on this video that has about 300,000 views right now, Yankees fans, in the comments going, damn, at least your ownership did it right. And they preserved a historic place. Boston Red Sox fans coming in and saying, good on you guys. We've got that brotherhood, I think, with the Red Sox and the American League. We did preserve our ballpark like they did. It's going to exist for another generation, generations of baseball fans. And we lament the loss of places like Yankee Stadium. Uh, as nice as the new place may be, it's not the same as the place that they left. And I'm glad the Cubs and the Red Sox have seen the importance and the significance of preserving these historic places. 
Ronan, one thing I want to toss in here, you mentioned the F-line beams and how you would call them F-U beams if I were involved. And you, we know how much you love putting my name on things, especially things where my name wouldn't necessarily go. If there were ever to be a Randall Stadium, you would intervene and make sure it was built entirely with F-U beams. You, you, <laughs> would, you would order the steel yourself. You'd talk to the architect. You would say, we need to build the stadium with the F-U beams. And then you would look back at me and you, you'd do that laugh that you do. I'd roll my eyes and we'd all walk into the stadium. Yeah, say I, what you want about those FU beams. It leads to the best upper deck in baseball. So I love those FU beams because you're so close to the action in the upper deck because those things exist. What do you got, Jeremy? Well, I was just going to say, I, I do think people are a little harsh sometimes on the Ricketts family. I, I mean, I know, you know, they're patting themselves on the back a little bit, but they did, you know, save Wrigley Field. I mean, that was their plan that they said coming in. We want to save Wrigley Field. You have to remember everything was falling apart you you go in there freaking nets hanging out and the concrete's crumbling and everything you know it's spackling everywhere everything's you know the ballpark was in a horrible horrible uh condition and so i i, I and you know i i understand that we're all you know skeptical of the ricketts family and people especially online you know after and in, the timing of it being after the trade deadline, but there's also probably a significant amount of Cubs fans, probably the majority of Cubs fans that don't really care about any of that, or just enjoy being Cubs fans. And they want to watch a documentary about their ballpark being renovated. And yeah, it's, you know, the Ricketts family goes out of their way to pat themselves on the back. They're they're even reading their plaque, you know, that they put up. It, it was like such a big deal. All oh, the Ricketts put up this plaque where they're, they're congratulating themselves. And yeah, it does congratulate themselves, but it's a freaking plaque. Like who cares? They put up a private, it says a $1 billion in private money to, for a Wrigleyville. And not all of that's the Ricketts, you know, they sold out ownership stakes in the ball, in the ball club to, to finance it all. But, you know, people complain all the time about, you know, uh, ownerships, you know, you are asking the, for government money and all this stuff. And the, and the Ricketts family did do that to start with, but then they, they changed their plans. And, and when they, they, and they put all their own money into saving the family. So I do think they deserve some, or excuse me, saving, well, saving the family and saving the ballpark, but I do think they deserve some credit. And I, I think sometimes people are just a little harsh uh, on them when I, you know, sometimes they are doing things. Yeah. They want to make money, but I do also think they want to win baseball games and they want Wrigley field to be a place where people can come and enjoy themselves and have a good time and not really kill the vibe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, Jeremy, we, we do not collectively do well with nuance and with the way the last, what do you want to say, three, four seasons have gone, it's really hard to give the Ricketts credit for what they deserve credit for. Uh, but yeah, Wrigley is preserved. And, you know, we, we all have, I think, some issues with how Wrigley was preserved. My biggest issue is that they got rid of what was the seating underneath the press box, which is now uh, club seating, which is a, a travesty, a travesty beyond words to me. So I know we all have issues with kind of the way they preserved Wrigley, but Wrigley has been shored up. It has been renovated and it will last for hopefully another hundred years. So there is a, a degree of credit due to that. And, you know, to that, I say, if the Ricketts want credit, go spend money on the team and we can talk about kind of doling out that credit incrementally again. So you're right. They do deserve credit, but it, you know, there's a lot of things for which they deserve scorn. And some of these things are so glaring that it really makes it hard to give them credit, but you're not wrong. They do deserve credit, at least for ensuring that Wrigley will exist in some form for as long as it's been around. And we can, we can talk about what they have or haven't done to the neighborhood another time. Well, yeah. And, and they also do deserve a little bit of credit for maybe the greatest era of Cubs baseball ever. So there is also that. 
Well, most of my feelings about Tom Ricketts will depend on payroll on April 1st next year, assuming the Cubs are playing baseball on April 1st next year. We'll get to that and the collective bargaining agreement in a minute. Um, really quickly, though, been wondering, okay, where does this 2021 Cubs team rank up with some of the worst Cubs teams of all time? The Cubs are currently on pace for a 91 lost season and who knows what's going to happen here over the next month i've identified a couple of years that kind of stand out to me um jeremy though when you're thinking big picture here worst cubs teams of all times where do you think 2021 ranks up or roughly where would you put it obviously we haven't seen every year of cubs baseball we know what we know about the last 120 years what jumps out at you though well first of all you you i mean obviously this team is not going to look in the record books as bad as it probably is currently now because this team's only really been this way since, you know, July 31st, the current, I I personally, to me, the roster they've been putting out. And as much as I talk about, you know, having fun with some of these guys, this is not a good roster. This is one of the worst rosters and it was worse a month ago. It's gotten a little bit better, but this is one of the worst rosters I can remember ever watching in Cubs history. But obviously, you know, if you're going to start with the worst Cubs teams, you got to start the beginning of the Theo era era to me for at least what I've seen. Uh, Those were some bad teams. They were the first Cubs teams to lose 100 games uh, in a long time, 50, 60 years. So those are some bad teams. You know, we, we know the 2006 team was a bad team. The 2002 team was a really bad team. The 1997 team was an awful team. So th- these are some bad Cubs baseball. But I, honestly, throughout maybe the Tribune era, uh, where, where we started watching is they were mostly mediocre Cubs baseball. There, you know, you get your 75 wins, you'll have your 84 wins every so often. Maybe you can luck into a playoff spot every few years, but that's kind of how the teams were. And so we didn't really see any truly awful baseball teams that often. We saw medio- a lot of mediocre baseball teams, but not truly awful baseball teams. And so, you know, this is a bad team. And, and we had an 11-game losing streak, even with all the good players on it. So when you get a 12-game losing streak with all the bad players, that's it's going to go up there in the record books. But this team, if they were to start, you know, from April 1 with this current roster, I don't know if this team's winning 50 games. Randall, any thoughts? Uh, yeah, Jeremy. Jeremy makes a great point, as he so often does. We saw a major league team really right up until the trade deadline. And I had this thought today as the calendar turned to September. It's only been a month since the trade deadline <laughs> because it feels like it's been a year of, of watching the, the team being put out there since then. Uh, but yeah, this record-wise, this probably isn't going to rank uh, among the worst or it's not going to be the worst it'll probably rank among the worst because they were fielding a major league team up until july 31st but as jeremy said i think if you were to take this team's record from uh from august 1st through to the end of the season if you were to extrapolate that out over the 162 game season i think you'd get some real ugly numbers so that's something i'm i don't want to say look forward to doing but that's something i I think we'll make for good reaction content for our podcast come the end of the season is we take the record from the record for August and September. We multiply that out over 162 game season and we put that out to our followers and then apologize to them for putting that in front of them. Well, you know, the last week has been sort of nice too with two games here in Minneapolis. You come home, you get the pirates a chance for this 
hodgepodge Cubs roster to get a couple more wins here. Um, a few other years I want to throw into the mix and highlight some really bad things about it. You both mentioned 2012, Cubs lose 101 games. 2013, end of the Dale Swaim era, also brutal. 96 losses. He was fighting with Starlin Castro. He was fighting with Anthony Rizzo, threatening to send those guys to the minors. Pretty disastrous year that led into Ricky Renteria and then led into Joe Madden and some real good years of Cubs baseball. 1999, Cubs allow the most runs ever by the pitching staff. 920 runs. Marty Demerit was the pitching coach in 1999. I got um, shoved at Cubs All-Star Kids Day by Dan Serafini for criticizing the Cubs pitching to Marty Demerit. I was a little punk, and I was telling him, hey, get this pitching staff together. That was a terrible team, and that was a team that was playing good baseball as early as, or as late, rather, as early June. So they were pretty competitive the first two months of the year. Then it got terrible. So 1999 is one. 1981, there's been multiple seasons impacted by strikes or lockouts. 1981, the Cubs only played 103 games. They were on pace for 102 losses. So it was very, very bad, fortunately, for that team. And it was before our time, so I didn't have to miss out on any baseball. The Cubs were very, very bad in 81. 1966, the first year of Leo Drosher, who ended up having lots of success as the Cubs manager in the late 60s. That was a really bad team. They finished 10th in the National League. 1962 was awful. That's the College of Coaches, where the Cubs had different coaches every couple of days managing the team and putting it together. That was the worst record in Cubs history, 103 losses. And then even back in the late 1940s, post-World War II, Cubs had a pretty good run there in the early to mid-1940s under Charlie Grimm. They lost 35 games in 1949, Randall, by five or more runs blown out all of the time. Um, many of those games pulled apart by Randall's guy, Paul Sullivan. He had an article comparing this team. So it's been bad over the last month. It'd be interesting over a full season, like what would Patrick Wisdom do if he started April 1st instead of starting at the end of May? He's going to set the Cubs rookie record for home runs, assuming he doesn't get hurt here in the final month. So who knows what this team would do, but I do not think the 2021 Chicago Cubs is the worst Cubs team of all time. I think we can rest assured it's not as bad as some of these other years, like 1962, where there was a different manager every couple of days. I, I would be curious to know what Cubs Twitter was like in 1949 <laughs> as they lost 35 games by five or more runs. I'm sure people were not happy. Randall was pissed. Uh, that's Randall yeah. Sr. Yeah, Randall yeah. Sr. was pissed. My ancestor, Randall my ancestor, senior. I'm sure, was not happy. I, well, I just want to go back to the 1999 team, a team that I wasn't really thinking about. But yeah, definitely. I, I think they start off that year, as you mentioned, like 32 and 23 or mm-hmm. something like that. I remember right around my birthday, and I, I went to yep. uh, Cubs Sox right around my birthday. It was like that June was 7th, rough. June 8th. That was kind of the, the, the turnaround, right? They had a rough series against the White Sox at Wrigley. I went there. Uh, I think I saw Jerry Springer at uh, Wrigley Field. <laughs> Got a nice picture with him and Steve. Uh, Steve. Uh, but, uh, that was, that was an interesting team. And, you know, yeah, Kerry Wood was out so that he didn't participate in that. Uh, maybe that's why Marty Demerit was having such a problem with the pitching staff. Uh, no Kerry Wood, but, uh, you know, I, I remember that team and, and it, it, the end, you know, when you start off like 32 and 23, they end up only winning like 60 games, 65 games or so. Yeah. That's not good. They were swept by the White Sox three games at Wrigley field right around your birthday. A lot of people, Sox fans in particular, 
We're so happy then in 1999. Look, we ruined your season. You ran it to us. We shut things down. I will, to this day, say that what actually messed up the 1999 Cubs, other than having not a very good roster, was Lance Johnson. The Cubs were in Arizona before that series against the White Sox. They were rallying late in the ballgame. Lance Johnson, historically a very good base runner, former White Sox, gets picked off first base. I believe it ended the game, at least ended the rally for the Cubs. After that, they come home, they get swept by the White Sox, and now you got a 90-loss team. So things were very ugly in 1999. Dan Serafini shoved me at Wrigley Field for criticizing him and Marty Demerit. Um, I just remember my mom, too, being disgusted by Marty Demerit, just his demeanor, the way he talked, the way he spoke to this group of like 10 year old or 11 year old kids. She was so put off by him. I was reading about Marty Demerit because that's a name I haven't thought much about in the last 20 years. He's still coaching. He's still in baseball. Most of his career has been in the low level of the minors for various teams and organizations as a pitching coach. Um, he's still working, I believe, with the Rays, low-level uh, Tampa Bay Rays team as a pitching coach. So good on you, Marty Demerit, a real baseball lifer. Just didn't care for you when you were in Chicago. Things didn't really work out there. Um, but two years later, Cubs had a lot of fun in 2001. We'll get to that here to bring home this podcast. want to talk about New York. Randall's favorite city, Randall's favorite team in the National League that isn't in Chicago, the New York Mets. What a dysfunctional week, guys, for the New York Mets here. If you haven't been paying attention, the Mets are in a free fall, although they've played better actually the last couple of days, but they've been in a free fall after cruising the first half of the year. They are getting booed left and right at City Field by their home fans. Javier Baez is a big hit over the weekend. He gives two thumbs down to the dugout. The players are doing the thumbs down thing. After the game, the media asks, hey, what's going on with the thumbs down? Javi basically says, well, the fans are booing us, so this is our way of booing them when we do good things on the field. Francisco Lindor, who just signed the 10-year contract extension with the Mets, he's in on it as well. Things blow up. Fans are pissed off. The team president for the New York Mets to issue a statement basically telling the players, knock it off. So today, we find out that the acting general manager of the New York Mets gets arrested for a DUI, or at least a suspected DUI, whatever you're supposed to say here before somebody's officially been charged. Really ugly, really messy situation right now uh, with the New York Mets. It's kind of laughable from afar to see dysfunction with other teams. It's like good for other teams to deal with this. But wow, what a week from fans booing and now the acting GM can't stay out of legal trouble. What a mess. Boy, the, the Mets, the Mets exist to make us all remember it, it could be worse. And I'd like to take a moment and pause. Let, let's stop and listen to Ron Santo laughing from up on high. Yep, I heard it. He'd be enjoying he, this. He'd be he'd be loving this. You know, the, the Mets, they remind you it could always be worse. Like the Cubs have no end of issues right now. There's no trust in the ownership. We're not we're not super happy with the front office, depending on who you ask. We know what the team on the field is like because we've spent the last hour plus talking about it. The Cubs have issues right now. The Mets take all of that and they they blow it out of the water. You know, the Mets were in first place at the time of the trade deadline. They bought, of course, they they brought in Javi. They brought in Trevor Williams. And it, it's all gone so badly for them since then. They're in third place now. They're actually only a few games ahead of the Colorado Rockies in the wild card standings, it's all gone so poorly for them. And it's all so funny. It's all so crone, baby. Yeah. CJ crone though, over there in Colorado, but the Mets, you know, the Mets have been this organization for a long time and they all hoped with Steve Cohn coming in, you know, it would be different, but then it wasn't different. He rehired Sandy Alderson who was out 
uh, you know, who was charged back, you know, in 2015, then got out when they, they hired, uh, I'm blanking on the guy's name, but he was an agent, uh, to take over. And then he was out and they brought Sammy Alderson back in. They hired Jared Porter, Jared Porter, uh, no go there in New York. He was doing some things I mentioned not be doing at least, uh, you know, especially in this day and age. Uh, so it's just the Mets have been this organization. Like they've, they've had this, these mishaps and, and Javi, I don't know what Javi's doing to be honest. Like, why is that something you're saying? You, that's probably something you should be keeping in house. Yes. Like I, I, I assume Javi, you know, I'm, if I was one Mets fan, I mean, Javi's not obviously gone. He's gone over there. He's struggled. He's been hurt. He's, you know, swinging at balls a hundred feet away from home plate. But so I, if you're a Mets fan, you're probably not too happy with Javi, but the guy I would be really not happy with is Frankie Lindor. The guy who came over, he's got gotten in fights already this season and with rat raccoon, whatever excuse. And then you sign him to a 10 year, $340 million contract. And he's got an under 700 OPS as he's missed much of the season. So Frankie Lindor would be the guy I I'm not too happy with. Um, if I'm a Mets fan and I, it was kind of hilarious though, to see all the Mets fans, all the Yankees fans, apparently like, why are they at the ballpark booing Javi, uh, yesterday when he came up and then he, you know, he did a couple Javi things, beat out an infield hit score all the way from first won the game. And then everybody's cool with Javi again, but, uh, it, it's going to be a mess. Uh, the Mets are in, you know, they got, they got, they got a chance here right now. I mean, I, I don't, you know, the odds are against them to make the playoffs, but they're playing some four teams right now for the next 15, 16 games, you know, they get playing the nationals, the Marlins. So if they can, maybe who knows, put on a run, we'll see what happens. Uh, Go ahead, Randall. Jeremy, the individual you were trying to come up with Brody Van Wagenen. Yes. The former agent who of course was hired as the Mets by their general manager who could have foreseen that that would have ended poorly, but you, you said it, the the Mets have been this organization for years and it's, it's just a, a a running joke. What are the Mets going to do today? You wake up every day wondering what met player, what meant front office individual, uh, the owner, what, who's going to end up in the headlines for doing what? And you, you almost, I say almost feel for Mets fans again, almost, because I don't sympathize with Mets fans. I know better than that. (laughs) Um, you, you almost sympathize with them for wanting uh, the previous owners gone. Um, and of course, the previous owners are gone, but you get Steve Cohen, who sits there and tweets about the OPS of the players as they're struggling. And in the middle of this thumbs down controversy has the, I don't know if it's the audacity or maybe just the comedic timing to go on Twitter and say, I miss when the biggest controversy was the black jerseys. Like you can't, you can't write this any funnier than it actually ends up being. And as much as I dislike the Mets on the field, because Ron Santo taught me that I appreciate them for giving us something to laugh at day in and day out. So thank you for that Mets. I'll say this too. I've been dispensing career advice to Zach Zaidman. The last two podcasts will give him a break this time. I've got some advice for Steve Cohen, the billionaire owner, very successful, lucrative owner of the New York Mets. I'm sure he cares what I've got to say. Get off Twitter. It's it's ridiculous for an owner of a major league baseball team to be on Twitter, you know, subtweeting his own players or throwing his own players under the bus. But like what benefit do you as the owner of the team get from being on Twitter? If you want to win fans support, if you want fans to cheer for you and believe in you as the owner, spend money on the big league team, invest in your minor league infrastructure, win baseball games. That's what you do. You spend money and you win games. This act where you're out on Twitter, oh, like I'm an everyday guy. I'm a fan of the team. It's such horseshit and it's embarrassing. And I don't think anything good comes from it. 
not in baseball. Can you imagine if Tom Ricketts had, had a Twitter account? Uh, Dick Monfort here in Denver had been in trouble in recent years. He made his uh, email address public. So fans could send him emails or thoughts on the team. He wrote some nasty emails back to fans, basically telling them, hey, if you don't like the product, don't come out to the ballpark. There's no good that comes from an owner being visible like that. So enough with the hubris, enough in looking for attention, shut down your Twitter account and run your damn baseball team like you're trying to win baseball games. To his credit, he has spent money. He gave that big extension to Lindor. They were aggressive trading one of their top prospects, Pete Crow Armstrong, to the Cubs for half a season of Javier Baez. Go to win baseball games. That's how you're going to win fan support. But get off Twitter because it's embarrassing and it's cringy and it's really shitty when an owner talks bad about players on Twitter. Like, at least be a man about it. You got a problem with Javi, say it to his face. Don't tweet it and get fans to support you and retweet you. I think that's Bush League. And I don't think there's any room for that of owners of a baseball team to be out on Twitter like that. That's my rant today, Randall. It's fair. There's nothing. There is nothing good going to come out of ownership on Twitter for any team, even an owner who's more well-liked. I can't imagine why you would ever subject that to yourself. If you own a baseball team, you probably have enough money to do just about whatever you want. I can't imagine why you would keep this pipeline around of just people, anonymous random people on the internet hurling abuse at you, even if your your fan base liked you. I, I don't understand it at all. It makes for great comedy. Like I appreciate it on that level, but for the life of me, I cannot imagine why he would do this. And I remember when he started that Twitter account, I remember as the sale of the Mets was going through and this, this unverified all lowercase account starts tweeting about owning the Mets, asking Mets fans what they'd like to see at the ballpark. I remember thinking to myself, that can't possibly be him. Nobody would be that stupid, but the Mets exist to remind us that yes, (laughs) somebody could in fact be that stupid. And I appreciate the Mets for reminding us us of that every day. Well, I think too, like, Fan bases are never going to be happy. Even when the Cubs won the World Series, how many idiots spent that offseason bitching about theoretically Joe Madden almost blowing game seven or a Roldis Chapman struggling, even though he came back out, pitched an inning that allowed the Cubs to win that World Series? You know, fans like that, especially anonymously on Twitter, they, they add no value here. So as an owner, knock it off. If you want to find out what fans want at the ballpark, there's a million ways you can do that. Survey the people that come to the ballpark. Go on Talk undercover boss. Go on undercover boss, right? Find out what it. the conditions are like. I mean, there's a lot of practical ways to get experience and to build what the game day experience is going to be like. And as an owner, to maximize your revenues, to make as much money as you can as an owner of the team. Don't go on Twitter and say, what do you want to see at the ballpark? That's wankery. That's all it is. And there's wankery. no room for it. Yeah, and, and, and remember, he was off Twitter for a while during that whole uh, Rocket Mortgage, uh, you know, uh, uh, GameStop controversy. Well, let's talk they a little bit him. more about asshole owners in baseball. Perfect segue here into the collecting, the collective bargaining agreement, or as we've been calling it here, the CBD, the collective bargaining disagreement. The current collective bargaining agreement between the Players Association and the owners, that's what leads to labor peace is set to expire here on December 1st, 2021. Look, the owners and the players have been fighting for many, many years. Uh, Long before we were born, the owners and the players were fighting with each other. We're starting to get a snippet of some of the main talking points that are going to be going into what is widely expected to be a very contentious disagreement here between the players and the owners. Um, The first thing that we heard about was 
a $100 million salary floor. And to help support that or fund that, the luxury tax dropping about $30 million from $210 million to $180 and stiffer penalties to teams that are not spending or rather are spending more than $180 million a year on payroll. So the early thing here is the owners have thrown this out before negotiations have begun in earnest, getting some public support, putting some stories out or searching for public support, putting stories out to the media. $100 million salary floor, sort of a $180 million salary. I don't want to call it a cap, but it's ostensibly a cap because if you go over it, you get taxed at a higher rate. You hear this information, Jeremy. We know it's early in the negotiation process. Where do you stand with this uh, $180 million number, which is a $30 million decline from the current start of the luxury tax? Well, I, I, I don't like it at all. And, and I do just want to correct. I said Rocket Mortgage. I'm going to say Robin Hood, uh, for the, but whatever. Uh, I don't like it at all. And I imagine the MLBPA does not like it at all. You know, that, that's, that, this is a, to me, it's a hangup. Like you're putting this out here like immediately. I, why am I even, you know, counter offering that? It's ridiculous uh, to bring the, uh, first of all, I'm, the whole thing, it, it's, it's kind of a joke. I mean, it's like, like just, I'm not into all the revenue sharing to begin with. And then, you know, to do why the teams, the Dodgers, the the Yankees, the teams that end up going over this number, they have to subsidize all the bad teams. Like, come on. I'm not a fan of that. Like all the other teams, every team in base. I mean, we talk about small market teams. Every team in baseball is owned by a billionaire owner, huge, whatever. Anybody could put the money in that they kind of want. And I understand. And I, I agree. You know, obviously there are constraints on every team, you have budgets, everything. So I, I understand all that but they can also put the money in. So these are huge organizations, uh, multi, it's a multi-billion dollar organization, major league baseball. Uh, so they have it. And, you know, and so there's more, you know, to speak on cause some other stuff came out today as well, but I'm just bringing it down 30 million. For, the threshold should be going up. It should, there's no way it should be going lower at all. So anything that has a number lower, cause the threshold is too low as it is. There were teams, 15 years ago, 10 years ago with $200 million payrolls. Yeah. $180 million payroll was like the top, the late 2000s. There's inflation. Things should be going up. Bringing it down is absolutely ridiculous. Bring it down that much is ridiculous. I thought last time in 2016, the numbers weren't high enough. It didn't go high. It didn't increase enough. So if, I, if I'm, you know, Tony Clark, I, I can't even like, I can't even with a straight face, like even look at this. Yeah, the league needs a salary floor. I think that is something that needs to be instituted because you've got teams who are, if that salary floor is $100 million, you've got teams who are consistently paying 50 60 70% of that to an entire major league roster. So I believe you need a salary floor. You need to set a minimum amount that a team needs to be spending on payroll. What you don't need to be doing, you don't need to be subsidizing that salary floor by taxing the teams who are actually willing to spend. You already have so few teams in Major League Baseball whose ownerships are willing to spend. The Cubs were this team. They haven't been the last few years, but it's the Dodgers, it's a few other teams who have ownership actually willing to spend on the team. And I think it's really silly to tax these teams who are willing to spend because it provides convenient cover for the ones who aren't willing to spend because they now all have free reign to say, oh, we don't want to go over the luxury tax and, and get taxed as repeaters. It, it's cover. It's, it's cover for these teams to not spend. It's cover for these rich owners to not put more money in the team. And I believe that luxury tax, I think that needs to go. It's not going to because that's not, of course, the way of the world. But I think you need to get rid of that. We see, we see in other sports, Chicago fans have seen Blackhawks teams dismantled because of the salary cap. We see the Bears constantly 
up against the salary cap and using that as an excuse to not put great teams out there. It, the salary cap, I don't know that it adds anything. And you said the luxury tax, it is kind of a soft cap because it provides cover for teams unwilling to go over that threshold. Uh, so as you said, this is going to be, a, a, I think, an ugly uh, CBA negotiation. And the one thing I'm looking forward to the least, and we got a, a glimpse of this last June, as the as owners and the players association were negotiating a return to play in in the heat of the pandemic is we saw every detail negotiated in public and it was awful because you have some reporters who are more than willing to uh, parrot to publish anything the owners tell them completely uncritically and the end these negotiations end up going through the media and being done in public and that doesn't help anybody I, you know, I personally get nothing out of seeing that the owners have offered this and the players have countered with this and the two sides are mad at each other. I get nothing out of that. And I don't think it helps the negotiating atmosphere. I don't think it helps the environment. I don't think it fosters any kind of trust between the two sides. And, and I'm not looking forward to that. And that is invariably going to be the case when the negotiations start this year. The, the CBA expires on December 1st, uh, midnight. On December 1st, you are going to see the first tweets from certain reporters saying the owners have offered this, the players have not countered, it's a non-issue right now, and it's gonna, it could be months, it could be several months of that. I'm not looking forward to that one bit. A, a contentious CBA negotiation is one thing, a contentious CBA negotiation that is going to play out almost entirely in public as the two sides hurl insults back and forth, there's not going to be anything fun about that. Well, you're, you're going to see it much earlier than uh, December oh, sure. Much, I mean, much you're earlier. It, you're seeing it now. You're right. Much um, earlier. Much uh, earlier. I, I, you know, to be honest, I, you, you say it's a soft cap. It's a hard cap, man. Pretty much. It's it's nobody goes over that. Even even the top teams, uh, they don't go over the luxury tax. That luxury tax was put in and, and it's it's the, the teams just don't willing. They're unwilling to do it. And uh, I not to be honest, I don't know if I am a fan of the salary floor. I'm not I'm not a fan of all these like things like, you know, everything is just a ways to put in ways to it usually benefits the owners. If they're offering it, it's going to benefit the owners. And today they came out. Um, there was other parts of this offer too. Uh, Joel Sherman reported that they were going to get rid of uh, service time. They were going to put everybody uh uh, 20, you, you know, you become a free agent at 29 and a half. If you're 29 and a half years old by the time of July 1st, you're a free agent at the end of the year. Um, that you could, you're, that's when you're held on to. And, uh, it would be part of a billion dollar, they would have a billion dollar pool for everybody, for guys that reach arbitration. Um, you know, there'd be part of a pool of money and there would be a formula to determine what guys are worth how much money out of that billion dollar pool. But of course, if there's a billion dollar pool, that's limiting, you're limiting right there. You're, that's kind of a cap. You're limiting what the players can make. You're putting a limit on it. So, uh, to me, I, 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 these teams can afford it. The whole point of the CBA negotiations is a lot of owners, they don't want to pay this money. So they're just putting things out there to, to, to get cost certainty and to, to drive down costs. So a lot of it, and, and, you know, Marvin Miller, uh, when he was in charge of the MLBPA, uh, basically, you know, inventing all of this, uh, he, he, he knew what he was doing. He, he set up a whole system, um, including service time, uh, back then that, cause he understood that there, there would have to be like players couldn't be free agents every year that if everybody was a free agent all the time, it would just totally drive prices down, which is what, uh, the owners at the time actually wanted. Uh, so, but, so there has to be some sort of service time. There has to be some sort of guys that are committed to the team, but the system that was set up back then is not, doesn't work for today. 
So I don't know. It's just, as Randall said, it's going to be a mess. It's going to be crazy. I mean, we're already getting the offers that the ownership has leaked uh, to all different media sources. Um, and I, I just can't imagine it's tough because MLB's gotten, or the player association has been really beaten back the last, at least the last two times. You could probably even say even further than back. I mean, 2002 was like the first time in like 40 years, there was no like serious, um, like work stoppage or anything when it came when our arguments, they just kind of agreed. And ever since then, there's really been labor peace. Um, and by doing so, the MLB, the player association is kind of just always given a little, little bit more away, a little bit more away. Every time they're given a little more away and they really kind of back themselves in the corner here. I mean, as Randall said, they're never going to get rid of the luxury tax. Once you agree to something like that, yeah. it's almost impossible to get rid of. So, uh, it's going to be hard for me to see how the players come out of this. They're going to have to really make a stand. And if they do that, unfortunately, that means that well, baseball is going to probably be at risk. Well, I like Tony Clark as a player. He was a lot of fun to watch for those years in Detroit. I haven't been very impressed with his leadership, especially going up against all those big-time counsel and lawyers that Major League Baseball has. What I don't like is the economics in the game are very messed up right now. Jeremy, you brought up a great point earlier. There are no small market teams in baseball. Yes, there are smaller markets than Los Angeles with the Dodgers or New York with the Yankees, but all of these teams are printing money. So what you're seeing with ownership in Baltimore, what you're seeing with ownership in Pittsburgh, two wonderful baseball cities with a ton of baseball history is appalling. There's no reason for these teams to be run like this. There were seven teams that entered this season with payrolls under $100 million. You look at payrolls 20 years ago, Jeremy, to your point, they're bigger than where they're at right now. Revenues in the game have doubled and tripled in that time. Owners are making money off of properties like McGregor Square that isn't being shared with the players. So I'm pro player here. I want players to be paid more. I want to see them be compensated more. I, it's very difficult as a major league baseball player to make money. And I know a lot of fans hear that and scratch their heads and go, well, what do you mean? Francisco Lindor just got a 10-year deal. Fernando Tatis Jr. got a 14-year deal. Those are few and far between. When you're a minor leaguer, you make nothing. Unless you're a first or second round draft pick, you largely get nothing when you sign with a signing bonus. Then you're in the minors all those years, not getting paid anything. You get to the majors, you're looking at six to seven years before you can finally get a big contract. You got to perform in that time. You can't get hurt. If Javier Baez was a free agent four years ago versus where he's at now, he's got a $200, $300 million deal, maybe more. Who knows? Right now, it's hurt him that it's been this long for him to get to free agency, that we're having serious conversations here about him coming back on a cheap one-year deal with the Cubs so he can look at the free agent market when the shortstop position is a little bit lighter. I want to see teams making money by trying to win, by trying to be competitive, and I want to see teams being punished like Pittsburgh and Baltimore, teams that are 40 games under 500. That's completely unacceptable. It's bad for the sport. What's this doing to baseball in Pittsburgh? What's this doing to baseball in Baltimore? Look, the Rays have put together a lot of winning teams, but it's horseshit what they're doing down in St. Pete. Getting players close to free agency and then trading them away. Not signing anybody to long-term deals. Playing in front of 5,000 fans with a team that's going to win maybe 100 games this year. It's really bad for the sport, and that's what I don't like. So I want to see changes where teams get incentivized to be competitive. Right now, all of the financial incentive is put a $40 million roster out there. Who cares if you don't sell tickets? That's not where teams are making money right now. They're making money on broadcast deals. They're making money on real estate investments around the ballpark. It's messed up. And it's not cool to the players. And more importantly, it's not good to the fans. It's not good for the health of the sport. And we need more competition in the game. We can't have 100 lost teams, five or six teams a year. 
Ronan, you mentioned one, one thing I want to touch on, how the minor leaguers make no money. There was a report yesterday that uh, the South Bend Cubs were allowing their coaching staff to live in what is the very nice apartment complex uh, across from the ballpark rent free while players were having to pay full rent and Andrew Berlin, the owner of the South Bend Cubs, his name is on that apartment complex. He's a part owner of the Cubs. He puts out a statement saying that's not true. Everybody pays rent. And I'm not sure that's the save he thought it was. It's uh, kind of darkly funny, but the the thing about this CBA negotiation is you are on what feels like the threshold of a lot of on-field changes being made. You still have changes that were instituted last year, the seven inning doubleheader games, the, the ghost runner at second, you, you had the universal DH last season. You don't have it this season. These are the sort of things that need to be addressed in a new CBA as would something like pay for the minor leaguers, even though it wouldn't be directly addressed because the minor leaguers are not unionized. They do not have a collective bargaining agreement. It's the sort of thing teams would agree to in a negotiation like this. And there's going to be so much oxygen and so much effort taken up by this contentious public negotiation about the finances of the big league players. I worry as in for changing some of the on-field rules, you need to change them and adapt them a little bit right now. And that's the sort of thing they can always do after the fact. Last year's changes were made in a, a non-CBA year. They changed them back to a certain degree this year in a non-CBA year. But you'd like to see them have some, some energy left to make changes to the on-field product that will resonate going forward. And I just worry that there's not going to be any energy, any enthusiasm, any time, any oxygen left to do that after these two sides get done duking it out. Well, I mean, I, I can tell you right now, there's not nothing's going to happen with the minor league players. Uh, neither side cares about that. Uh, no. So nothing's going to happen about the major league players do not care about that because they've every time the way, you know what the best way the major league players uh, negotiate to make money. They sell out all the minor league players. They sell out all the amateur players. Oh, you want to put a cap on international free agency? Oh, you want to put a cap on amateur drafts, amateur like they don't care. They, they don't do because they want the money for themselves. So it's I, called pulling the ladder up behind you. Yeah. So I, I don't foresee anything. I mean, that's happened the last 20 years. I don't foresee it changing it. Uh, I, I As for other things like, you know, the University H, obviously the owners think is part of a negotiation uh, tactic as as expanded playoffs are for uh the players, you know, the players are a hold out on expanded playoffs because that'll that that's a benefit for the owners. And the owners think the same for the universal DH for the players, but I assume things like that will get sorted out. Uh, I don't think there'll really be much, um, you know, discussion on that, but, but just the whole structure of major league baseball itself, uh, that, <laughs> that is going to be a highly, the economics of baseball, that is going to be a highly contentious, uh, negotiation this time around. No question. No question. And look at pick any owner that's bought a team. You know, Cohen might not be the best example just because it's been so short. But um, looking at Jerry Reinsdorf bought the White Sox for about $20 million. That team today would be valued at at least one and a half billion dollars. And a couple more years here, it's easily going to pass too. All of these owners have made money hand over fist. They've gotten public money to build ballparks in basically every city except the Cubs. The White Sox got public money to build and renovate that piece of crap they play on on the South Side. They tore up a historic cathedral of baseball to build that tax-funded dumpster fire down there. So that bothers me. I want to see again 
teams being rewarded for being competitive. We talked about this preseason, but even like the draft, why should a team like Baltimore or Pittsburgh be rewarded with the first overall pick by completely punting on the season? What if, for example, you gave the number one draft pick to the team that just missed the playoffs and you're incentivizing teams being competitive? We'll throw these ideas around. We'll talk about the universal DH. We'll continue to look at the upcoming collective bargaining agreement, but it's, it's rough, man. And the one optimism that I have, and unfortunately it took a global pandemic to make it happen, is because revenues have been impacted the last two years, I'm hoping that that incentivizes the owners and the players to do what they need to do to get a proper spring training in at a full season next year as soon as possible. Can they afford to have another season where they're not collecting gate and broadcast revenue and all of that? Hopefully that adds a little bit of fuel to this conversation here and leads them towards labor peace because I want to see baseball April 1st next year. The Cubs are in Denver in early April. Those games better happen. I want to be there. And you know what? Look, the owners make your money. That's part of the deal. You've invested your money into these teams. You deserve to make profit off it, but don't lose sight of growing the sport long-term. I worry these owners are so concerned about short-term profits. How much money do we make this year? How much money do we make next year? Maybe one year out past that. What about 10 years from now, 15 years, 20 years from now, are people going to care about baseball in Baltimore or Pittsburgh if they never see winning teams? That sucks. That shouldn't happen. And um, these owners, you're billionaires. Sell the damn team. Do whatever you want with your time. Can we get some owners in the sport who actually like the sport and don't just like making money? That would be nice. But who knows? Maybe we'll stumble into a couple billion dollars here, Randall. We can buy a baseball team and we can run it correctly. And you know what? I'll even let you stay on Twitter. I'll get off of it. Jeremy will get off it. You can be the face of the team on Twitter. Jeremy and I'll take care of the business. I'll be the first ever MLB team owner be tweeting. That's horse shit. Every, every game I can make history. You'd be the Mark Cuban getting fined up and down for calling off the refs, the umpires. Well, let's, let's go back in time here as we bring this podcast to a close. The continuing ballad of the 2001 Chicago Cubs. Just a short story I wanted to share with everybody. Jeremy, I know you remember this really well. This was a memorable stretch of Cubs baseball. Um, if you remember, the Cubs got off to a really hot start that year. They finished April 15-9. and nine, And a big game, or a day's worth of games that I remember in that stretch, was a doubleheader sweep against the Philadelphia Phillies on April 18th. That's when you were starting to go, huh, this team's actually pretty good. Look, they just swept the Phillies. I don't know that I ever saw a doubleheader sweep as a Cubs fan until that got going there in 2001. I'm sure they did at some point, but that was in April that year when I started to see that that team was going to be special. I remember Jeff Facero. I think he closed out both of those ball games to get the save in both of those doubleheader uh, sweeps there on uh, April 18th. Yeah, I, I, get, I oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to talk about those Philly, those Phillies uh, uh, games. I wanted to say, are you talking about in, in Philadelphia at the vet? No, they were. I thought they were I, at the vet. I remember them playing they, at the vet very early in the season. They did. They played the first week or so of April in Philly. They okay. came home, though. The doubleheader sweep was actually at oh, Wrigley. At I misremembered that. I thought both of those games were at the vet, but it was at home. And, and Facero was big in closing those ones out. Yeah, because I remember I, I want to say Zuleta hit like a big double down the line at the vet. And I remember watching like watching that. Well, the Cubs were rolling early, May 9th. Cubs beat the Brewers six to three. They improved to 21 and 12. So you're getting into May, teams playing good baseball. You're thinking, all right, things are going really, really well here. 
They get into a real bad stretch of baseball, losing eight straight ball games. It started with a loss in Milwaukee. They go to St. Louis for three. They're swept. They go to Houston for three. They're swept. They come home to Wrigley, May 18th. You've got Arizona. You're thinking, okay, tough road trip. Let's come home. Let's right the ship. You get blanked by the Diamondbacks four to nothing. Now you're 21 and 20. Things aren't looking so good. All that early season optimism is out the window. You've lost eight straight. What do the Cubs do, Randall? They win 12 games in a row from May 19th to June 2nd. They swept the Reds. They swept the Brewers. They swept the Reds. They win a couple of games in Milwaukee. But there were two wins during that 12-game winning streak that I think stand out and were memorable because they happened on back-to-back days. So the first one, May 24, 2001, Cubs blanked the Reds 3 to nothing. Who's the star of the game? John Lieber, who wins 20 games for the Cubs that year. He goes the distance. It's a shutout. One hitter with two strikeouts and one walk. Sarge Jr. with two hits and a couple driven in in that game. Cubs beat the Reds three to nothing. The very next day at Wrigley Field, a Friday 2:20 start. Kerry Wood on the mound against the Brewers. What does he do, Randall? Nine innings, a shutout, a one hitter. He strikeouts 14. And the Cubs win back-to-back games with complete games, shut out one hitters from John Lieber and Kerry Wood. That's part of the Cubs' 12-game winning streak. Jeremy, I know you remember those back-to-back games early in the season. Both of those games, under two hours. The first one, an hour 46. The Kerry Wood game, an hour 57. That's when you're starting to think, this is really special. Dominant performances from Liebs and KW. I yeah, definitely remember those games. I remember Chip. Chip was very excited at the Kerry Wood one hitter after that. I mean, that Kerry Wood game was uh, ridiculous. He was just dominant um, with 14. Stri- I remember him being like super dominant, whereas the day before John Lieber was not quite so dominant. Uh, he, you know, he pitched, you know, he kind of got around there. But yeah, the double one hitters was is always something that kind of stuck with me um, with Lieber and Wood. And, you know, Lieber had an excellent year that year. Absolutely. And just a roller coaster to lose eight straight, to come back and win 12 straight. I'll never forget, too, how the 12-game winning streak came to a close. It was in Miller Park. The Cubs were going for the sweep against the Milwaukee Brewers. Ben Sheets, a rookie, remember he had that amazing run with the U.S. Olympic team. A lot of energy and excitement around Ben Sheets. He's facing Julian Tavares. That game goes to the ninth inning. Cubs are trailing four to two, two outs, tying run on Uh, At the plate, Sammy Sosa was the batter. There was the other runner on base. Sammy comes up in the ninth with two outs, three balls and two strikes. Curtis Laskanik was the pitcher for the Brewers in that game. Sammy crushes the ball to right field. The TV's lost it. The right field corner at Miller Park at that point in time, there were no camera angles on it. Jeremy Burnitz, who had a couple of hits in that game, leaps up over the fence, robs Sammy Sosa of the game-tying home run, 12-game winning streak comes to a close on June 3rd, 2001. I remember that moment distinctly. I thought Sammy had it. He did one of those tentative hops. It wasn't the full Sammy hop when he knew he got it. He didn't get into his home run trot. Jeremy Burnett's up over the fence, ends that winning streak in four to 42,385 fans at Miller Park. It was an incredible stretch. Two and a half, three weeks of baseball, eight straight losses, 12 straight wins. And Sammy almost extended it. It would have been very cool. Lots of intense moments between the Cubs and the Brewers. That was one of the earlier ones back in 2001, but a memorable game between these two teams. And that's another ballad of the 2001 Chicago Cubs. Crazy times with a very, very fun team. And Sammy, didn't he hit a milestone homer right around that time? Uh, was that his number 400 basically that week? 
that sounds right. That sounds right. And then 500 came in Cincinnati in yeah. 2003. Yeah, because I, I think we went to D.C. like right at the start of the win streak in eighth grade. Yeah, amazing, though. And uh, you're right. I, I remember, though, thinking, okay, this team's looking really good. And then, oh, no, eight straight losses and to bounce right back. The Cubs haven't had those bounce backs this year with the long losing streak. So that's unfortunate. But 2001, you pick any game in 2001, look at the box score. You got the Julian Tavareses, you got the Julio Zuletas, you got the Matt Stairs, the Ron Coomers. It's just full of names. And for us as 14 year olds or so tracking that team, very memorable summer, even if it didn't end well, that stretch in May into June, I'll never forget it. Yeah, correct. I loved it. That was such a great summer. And the Cubs, that 12 game win streak, you know, that was the longest, what, longest win streak since like 1932. It was ridiculous. So fun, fun stretch there. We'll continue to revisit the team over the next couple of weeks. Uh, but boy, we got through a lot here tonight. Pretty full podcast there, Randall. Do you have something before we go? I do. Before we go, one more moment to uh, spare thought for the people in the New York City area right now. The images coming in are just crazy. Subways flooded. Uh, roads flooded. The buses can't get through. Newark Airport in New Jersey is completely flooded. There's a, a photo circulating of Yankee Stadium. The outfield is completely drowned right now. It's a lake. You would need a boat to get to the bullpens out there. It's crazy. Uh, a moment to hope that everybody out there stays safe, stays dry, and is able to pull through this because it, it is crazy out there right now. Yeah, good looking out, Randall. That's horrible. And I uh, just pulled up Twitter here. Uh, Alexander Hall with harrowing footage, uh, I think in his house, maybe his basement here. So we're thinking about him um, and all the folks in New York. And then on the other half of the United States, these fires are out of control. I was thinking about the hockey game last year, the Avalanche were playing in Lake Tahoe, and they had some difficulties with the ice and some glares and things like that. But the setting of that hockey match was incredibly photogenic, just a beautiful place. A lot of people right now in California uh, fleeing for their lives, their property, their memories. It's horrible what's going on. We've been very fortunate here in Colorado. It's been a relatively light fire season for us, but that smoke has just been suffocating, been very, very bad here the last couple of days. So tough times here. If we could just take some of that water from New York and put it in California, we'd solve a lot of problems here. So maybe that's something the engineers across the United States can figure out for us and get a solution to this because it's very, very scary. And it's just sad knowing these are people's lives. These are people's homes. And um, the footage too, 16 years, I think after Katrina, another big storm there hitting Louisiana to the it's day, terrible. 16 it's years terrible. to the day. Yeah. Um, so we're thinking about all those folks. Um, let's end on a lighter note, though, because I don't want to end on an ominous note here. Um, we're excited for the bear season. I got one question for you both. What will be the week that Justin Fields is the starting quarterback for the Chicago Bears? You're a season ticket holder, Jeremy. What week is Justin the number one QB? Well, I'm just, just going to pull it right out right now. Just pulling it out of my head. I'm just going to say week uh, seven. Oh, wow. I sure yeah. hope not. Randall, what do you think? I'm going to go a little earlier off the top of my head. I'm going to go week five. Okay. And I'm going to say week four. That's when the Lions and the Bears play. That to me seems like a pretty good introduction because after that, they have a couple of tough games. I know Green Bay's in the mix shortly after that game against Detroit. So opens up with the Rams. They got, a, I think the Browns, there's the Bengals in there as well. So kind of a light start to open the season after playing the Rams but I'm ready for Justin Fields and I'm ready for Indiana football this weekend. They're going to Iowa to take on the Hawkeyes. It's just good to see college football back and hopefully fans can go out, be safe, 
enjoy these games and a little bit of normalcy here returning. It's always fun to see college football stadiums full and fans having a good time. And they got a really cool tradition there in Iowa where they wave at the children's hospital right next to the stadium. So that's pretty cool stuff. Um, that said, let's go IU. Let's get it done. Who do the Illini have this weekend or are they playing, Jeremy? They, they are playing. They're playing the University of Texas at San Antonio. The oh, Roadrunners. Road road yeah, runners. I was going to say the Roadrunners. Road How about that? Well, good luck with that to you and Bucky the Badger, your new head coach. Randall, whatever football team you're pulling for in college this year, I hope they have a wonderful season. Go them. We'll give you a chance to talk more about Mets fans next week. For Jeremy and Randall, this is Ronan. Thanks for joining us. We're on Twitter at BTYL Podcast. Give us a follow, and we'll see you next week. We're talking Chris Bryant's return to Wrigley Field on the next edition of Behind the Yellow Line.